Well, good afternoon, everyone, and happy Sabbath. Um, it's good to see everyone again. Um, so just by way of uh, review, really, um, Jinha shared last week about Constantine and the marriage of church and state. And she shared about how uh, Constantine not only made it legal for Christians to practice their faith, but he also encouraged non-Christians to uh, become Christian. And what ended up happening is there was this influx of people that came into the church at this point in time. And uh, what uh, was interesting is that the political scene of that time was that Rome was then united. And uh, here's a little picture here. Um, this is just post-Constantine, but this map has more functions than just what I'm trying to give it. So forgive that two-color thing. So picture all of that is the empire of Rome. And uh, what ended up happening is that Christianity really exploded at that time. Now, after Constantine passed away, uh, divide, uh, Rome then divided. And it's at this point in time that the church is faced with a problem and it decides to unite. And uh, so today I want to share with you the rise of the Christian empire and what really led to uh, Christianity becoming a, a, a massive influence, even more of a massive influence than uh, it was then. From between, uh, it's at this time that it's uh, the imperial age of Earth's history. And uh, it's at this time that the church's desire for unification uh, caused an increased coordinated effort and uh, this desire to centralize power. And what takes place is that the bishops decide to gather together and they decide together, uh, we need to centralize our power and we're going to... Uh, we need one individual to rise above all of the bishops because they were all seen as equals because they were all peers. And then was introduced this idea of having one individual who would be the rightful representative of God on earth. And they gave him the title of Papa or Pope. And so now enters in this new age of uh, the papacy. And we're entering in between the ages of... Uh, uh, maybe just post 450 AD. And it's, it's at this time that, uh, these individuals begin to, these individuals in the church begin to seek for power. Now there was one notable individual in history, uh, early on in the papacy, and his name was Gregory the Great. Um, the great part is added after Gregory became Pope, but, uh, can you imagine being given the nickname Great? Uh, Nah, well, uh, never mind. <laughs> so, Gregory the Great. Now, he has a very interesting story. Uh, he's, he was born and raised in this wealthy ruling family, and uh, there was lots of pressure placed on him to really succeed. And so he went on and became a lawyer, um, and became quite successful, and he went to his dad, and he basically expressed his desire for becoming a monk. He really wanted to give up all of his wealth, all of his power, all of his influence, and he really wanted to dedicate his life to the church. His dad promptly said, no. <laughs> and so he basically continued on being a lawyer. Now, what takes place is his father and his mother eventually pass away. And Gregory, Gregory decides, I am now going to pursue my dream. He sells all of his inheritance and uh, basically builds uh, six churches uh, for the church. And the last piece of property that he had uh, was his dad's palace. And he turned that into a monastery. And so he uh, basically gave, or he built around seven buildings for um, for the church. Now, in 590, 
um, Gregory became quite influential and uh, quite well known, and he was asked to assume the role of Pope or Papa. And when he was given the role, he basically said, I don't want the name Pope, um, just call me the servant of servants. And so he rejected the name, but interestingly enough, he assumed all the, he exercised all the power of the Pope. So anyway, here are a few things that he's known for. Uh, Gregory was known as a very good preacher, and he often preached about humility, and he was quite respect, uh, respected because he literally followed what he preached. He sold, uh, he sold everything, he gave away all his money, all of his power, and he really lived a humble life, and so uh, people really respected him for that. He was also a very good administrator, and it's under the... Uh, under the leadership of Gregory, uh, that the church really increases in wealth, and the church became very, very wealthy. Um, and so with that wealth came power, because uh, Gregory decided uh, there are a lot of wars going on right now, and so that we need to be able to protect ourselves, and so at this t- it's at this time that the church actually um, begins to raise its own army. Can you imagine if uh, Melbourne City Adventist Church had uh, trained mercenaries to protect... <laughs> The front door. Anyway, <laughs> so Gregory raises this army, and the church becomes not only wealthy and not only powerful; it becomes an influence in politics as well. And so, this it's at this time that other emperors become interested once again in the church, and different relationships begin to form at this time. Here's one of the last things that uh, Gregory was known for. Uh, he had a really strong desire for mission. And what he does is he heavily invests in the professional training of his monks. And so um, what he does is he gathers individuals who are completely dedicated to God. He properly trains them and then he sends them to different parts of the world. And it's at this time uh, that the church really uh, grows uh, as a result of this, um, as a result of this training. And so, uh, back to this uh, picture, what's taking place about this time, maybe a little bit in the future, is the borders of, the, of uh, this area are kind of being influenced by different influences. For example, uh, on the far eastern side uh, of the Middle East of the world, uh, Islam is just beginning to start, and Islam becomes this very uh, influential religion, and uh, it becomes very... Um, confrontational with the borders of Christianity and uh, basically there, there's a, there are a lot of wars that take place in this area and um, Gregory, or excuse me, the, the Catholic Church sees that there's this kind of need to kind of spread those borders. Uh, to the far east in England, uh, there were a lot of pagans that were kind of residing. I think they were called the Lombards. And uh, basically, they're causing issues over there. And so what um, what the Catholic Church decided to do is they send these missionaries to different areas. And um, yeah, basically, the church uh, gains influence in those areas. Now, what takes place in the far east is that uh, there's this monk by the name of Augustine, and he arrives on the borders of England, or of uh, the Anglo-Saxon land, and he meets this uh, woman, and her name is Bertha, and she happens to be the Gaelic wife of Ethelbert, the king of Kent, and she becomes receptive to the gospel and decides, I want to learn more about this, I want to dedicate my life to God, and she influences her husband, hey, be nice to these monks, spend time with them, and he eventually becomes a Christian himself. And it's at this time that England uh, begins to unite, and as England unites, uh, Christianity becomes the dominant religion uh, in England. And so if you fast forward a couple hundred years to around uh, 800 uh, AD, uh, England is 
pretty much completely Catholic or Christian, and uh, the the theology that comes from England is very important because it becomes very academic in the way that they approach Scripture, and it becomes very influential. So. Um, it's at this time that the gospel continues to go down towards Germany and France, and uh, there's another emperor by the name of Clovis. And this is uh, there's a lot of history that kind of overlaps each other, so um, it's kind of hard to explain this in a linear fashion. But if you can just picture, there's a guy named Clovis in France, and he also hears about the gospel. He decides he he decides I want to become Christian, and basically. Um, influences his whole family to become Christian. And so if you look at, uh, from Emperor Clovis and you look at his family tree, uh, each of his children become, um, his children and his grandchildren become Christian. And then you have this very influential French emperor named Charlemagne. And uh, it's in 800 AD that Charlemagne um, basically is the emperor of, of, uh, of, well, France, but the Franks, I should say. Now, it's at this time where Charlemagne hears about the uh, theology from England and he gathers a monk together and he says, I want to implement a system of education in my empire. Will you come and basically build uh, a system of education which was heavily influenced by Christianity? And this actually takes place and now you've got Christianity in politics, you've got Christianity in the schools, and you have Christianity as a religion and it just becomes a very dominant force uh, in the world. And so, in summary, uh, the rising of the Christian Empire, and I just kind of gave you a shotgun shot of everything that took place, uh, basically it's these different entities that cause Christianity to be this influence. And what I want to ask today is uh, whether or not these kind of influences are a good thing, or if they are uh, something that's more hurtful than good. And a lot of people debate on whether or not um, these things were good or bad. But what I want to do is kind of go through this exercise, and I was looking at uh, through some statistical data of of our particular, of my particular denomination, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I just kind of uh, want to share some of those statistics with you because I thought it was kind of interesting. So this is Charlemagne's empire. Um, now... This is uh, taken from the 2012. Every five years, they have this um, this session where they gather statistical data together, and we kind of have a good idea of uh, where our church is at. And so, uh, when it comes to education, uh, worldwide, we have around 113 tertiary education uh, tertiary institutions. Can you guys from this end see the see the slide? Okay, cool. Uh, we have uh, 1,969 secondary schools. We have 5,714 primary schools. Uh, we've got 444 hospitals slash clinics. This means uh, basically some of them are just like smaller, smaller little clinics that uh, take care of um, maybe minor medical needs, and then you actually have big hospitals as well. So it's just a, it's a mix of that. We have over 63. Uh, we have 63 publishing houses. Um, if you look at the worldwide membership, uh, we have. Uh, 17.5 million people who are a part of a part of this church. Um, there are over 74,000 local churches. There are over 67,000 uh, companies. And basically, what a company is is it's basically as a church grows, its status changes. So a church would start at a group status. So Melbourne City Adventist Church is a group. And as it grows, it would then change its status to company. And then once it becomes stable, it would become a church. And so, yeah, there's a fairly significant um, 
significant Adventist presence uh, worldwide. Um, I'm curious, does anybody know who this gentleman is, Barry Black? Or has anyone ever seen him? A picture of him? Okay. So, Barry Black was the first African-American uh, United States Admiral, uh, in, uh, excuse me, Admiral in the United States Navy uh, as a chaplain. And so, um, historically, it's pr- predominantly been Caucasian males who uh, achieved the rank of Admiral. And this gentleman who uh, started out just as a chaplain in the United States Navy kind of climbed the, climbed the ranks and be, like, got into the highest rank possible in, uh, in, in his line of work, which is very impressive. Um, and there was a time in his life where he kind of asked himself, okay, what should I do next? And he was thinking about taking this one particular job uh, uh, versus um, staying in the Navy, and he's kind of like, okay, what do I do? And he receives a phone call from the Pentagon, uh, not from the Pentagon, excuse me, from uh, Washington, and they ask, himself, uh, they ask him, excuse me, would you be willing to become the chaplain for the United States Senate? And uh, he he accepted that position, and he is the current uh, chaplain uh, in the United States Senate. And so he gives devotional thoughts, prayers to politicians, like regularly. That's as part of his job. And so his role is basically ministering to the spiritual needs of the politicians in in Washington D.C., which is fairly significant. Um, and then, uh, of course, there's how many people? How many people have heard of Ben Carson? All right. So he's basically uh, a pretty well-known um, pediatric neurosurgeon. And he's been asked on multiple occasions to become the Surgeon General of the United States of America. Um, apparently, he's declined a couple times. And uh, this year, he decided that he would um, run for presidency. Now, this is not uh, my me giving promotion and saying vote or don't vote or whatever. It doesn't matter because we're in Australia. But um, I just... It blows my mind that there's that Ben Carson is running for president. But um, so what I want to ask the question is: Are these good influences? Are these bad influences? How do we approach these things? Um, and to make it more personal, um, there are moments where each of us have desires, each of us have goals, and the perspective that the Bible takes on our goals is to um, give these goals, these desires to God and um, to let Him work in our lives. And I want to walk through Scripture and because the challenge is how do we know when something is our desire and our goal versus God's desire and God's goal. And so uh, I want to look through Matthew chapter 6 together with you. Matthew chapter 6 has a very well-known passage. It's the Lord's Prayer. And I find that in the Lord's Prayer, there are great guidelines um, that can give, that can offer us direction in our lives. And uh, oftentimes, I see uh, people who use the label of Christianity for something that may not be so Christian. And uh, in church history, the church took the name of God and uh, did a lot of interesting things like the Crusades, uh, like the Inquisition. And uh, historically, the church is known for doing some pretty, pretty, bad, thing, uh, pretty bad stuff. And um, yeah, I just kind of want to ask the question, how do you know when you're in a place where you're doing the right thing for the right reasons? And I really believe that the Lord's Prayer has some great advice. So I'll walk through it with you together. So verse 9 Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and he says, In this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is to heaven. And so this kind of template for prayer that Jesus is trying to teach to his disciples is introduced by saying, make sure and make your life about promoting God's kingdom. And I think a lot of times um, it's easy to have desires that are probably a bit more self-centered, but then put a Christian kind of label on it. I'll give an example. When I first came to Australia, uh, and this is embarrassing, but I'll be vulnerable with you anyway, um, one of the greatest desires that I had was to buy a car. I was just like, growing up, going through uni, I was like, when I get a job, I'm going to buy a car. Like, I'm going to buy a car. And so... Uh, Jinha and I come to Australia, and I remember we were we were uh, about to fall asleep, and I looked at Jinha, and I was like, Jinha, can I buy a Golf GTI? <laughs> and she looked at me, she was like, you can buy a Golf GTI. And I was like, dear God, do you want me to buy this Golf GTI? <laughs> and then after, while I was praying, I was like, this is retarded, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, trying to put this Christian label on this desire that I had. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever prayed for certain desires that, that you've had. Like, God, uh, should I purchase this house? God, should I move forward with this? And I'm not saying those things are bad. It's actually good to include God in your decision making. But for me at that time, um, the desire was, I'm gonna buy this thing, and God just bless it, whatever that means. <laughs> you know, like, this car should never break down because I prayed before, I, you know, I don't know. Anyway, so, Jesus' introduction to this passage is, do this for the sake of God's kingdom, not our will, but God's will be done. And the question that I have for this message is, how do you know if it's your will versus God's will? How do you know if it's your will versus God's will? Because we're pretty good at making reasons for whatever we want to do, right? We can, I, I know how to um, rationalize certain things just so that it sounds like it's a good idea, even if it may not be. So here are, are three things that um, I find are very interesting uh, in Matthew chapter 6. The first one, uh, Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus is referring to our sustenance, uh, things that we need, whether it's food, clothing, shelter, whatever have you. And the reason why I say this is, if you have your Bibles, later on in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus kind of repeats this phrase and then kind of expounds upon or expands on this thought. So if you have your Bibles, if you go to Matthew Chapter 6, and what we're going to do is look down near the end of the passage, and we're going to look at verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. And here's what Jesus says. This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or what your body, or excuse me, or about your body, what you will wear, isn't life more than food, and the body more than clothing. So here Jesus then references this idea of uh, sustenance, right? So here's this line, give us this day our daily bread. And for me, the question is, what does that, what does that actually mean? And from verse 25, if you have your phones or your Bibles with you, just skim all the way to 34, and I'm just going to highlight a few things. Here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Ask God to sustain you. And then in verse 25, it's almost like Jesus is saying, don't focus on your sustenance. It almost seems contradictory. And as you keep reading, there's this phrase that keeps repeating itself throughout the passage. And that phrase is, don't worry. Don't worry. 
a lot of times we place morality upon material goods, right? It's bad to seek after wealth. What does that make wealth bad? Or it's, um, some people say it's bad to be in poverty. Well, is poverty bad? And what I like about this passage is Jesus brings, brings perspective on material goods. And his counsel from verse 25 to 34 is don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And he's not really focusing on the material goods, but he's focusing on the attitude that we have towards sustenance, if that makes sense. And so if you look near the end of the passage, verse 31, Jesus says, So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly uh, seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. So notice here, at the end of this statement, Jesus says, I will provide you with sustenance. So it means you can't really put morality to material goods, right? Because Jesus says, I actually want to give you these things. But what he's addressing is our attitude towards those things. So he's saying, replace your fear with faith. Replace your anxiety with this sense that God's presence is there. And so Jesus' command to say, don't worry, is backed up by this uh, promise that is implied. What he's saying is, your material goods may not be there, but I will be there. Your desires may not be fulfilled immediately, but I will fulfill you. Seek after my fulfillment. And then, once that's prioritized, I will give you what you need. And what that does is, it allows restricting ourselves gives God the ability to do what he needs to do. And so it's often that anxiety can influence the decisions that we make. And so Jesus is saying, you give me your anxiety, I'll give you faith, and you can make the right decisions. So here in this passage, uh, the first point about how to know whether or not something is God's will versus our will is, what is the attitude that we have towards the thing that we have, if that makes sense. And so Jesus' uh, first guideline is um, faith instead of fear. Faith instead of fear. So here's the second thing. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There is this spirit that we are to have as Christians in life. It's a spirit of love. It's a spirit of forgiveness. It's a spirit of reconciliation. And uh, how we do what we do is just as important as what we do. So how we do what we do is just as important as what we do. So a spirit of love and a spirit of forgiveness is just as important as what we end up doing with that. So here's the third and final point. Verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This idea of temptation, this idea of um, there is this evil one who is trying to get us to do the wrong things implies morality implies morality. In other words, there is right, there is wrong. And the question is, well, how do you know the difference between right and wrong? Well, in Scripture, God gives us His Word. He gives us His commandments. And the more familiar you become with His Word, with His commandments, the more aware you become of what is right versus what is wrong. And so, there's this idea of morality. Oftentimes, when we have these dreams, we have these goals, um, it can be tainted or marred by how we accomplish those things, right? You can have this great goal, this great desire uh, for good, 
but do it in all the wrong ways. You can get there by manipulation. You can get there by lying. You can get there by, and then you can fill in the blank, right? And so Jesus is saying, if you are able to practice morality in how you get there, um, basically, it limits what you can do. And by limiting what you can do, you allow God the freedom to do what he needs to do. So restricting us unrestricts God. And basically, God is saying, you practice these principles, and you will know if something is my will. Now, when I look at this passage, um, the how is addressed. The why is addressed. But what isn't addressed is the what. And the reason why I think Jesus does this is because we are created as creative individuals. Each of us have different desires. We have different goals. There are different things that God places upon our hearts. And so what is not really addressed? What, let's say someone says, uh, I believe that God wants education for the glory of his name. Well, it gives someone the freedom to do that. If someone says, I believe that God wants me to be an influence uh, in politics, there's Ben Carson who says, I believe God wants me to do this. Um, well, it gives Ben Carson the freedom to be able to say, this is what God has placed upon my heart. You know, sometimes we can look at things and place morality on it and say, oh, politics is bad, so don't do it. Or education is bad, so don't do it. Is that really the mission of God? And what I like about this prayer is that Jesus addresses attitude, motive, and mindset over what exactly it is that we're trying to accomplish, which gives freedom, basically. And that's why we have people that are in the medical field here, or people who are in IT, or people who are in, and you can fill in the blank. And what I like about this is that um, it really, this prayer causes us to ask the question, where is my heart when it comes to my goals? Where is my heart when it comes to my goals? So I want to ask you the question today as you're closing. We're going to have discussion questions here, and I think one of the questions um, is actually written there on the paper, but I want to ask you the question, if you were to go through this prayer and practice these principles, what would change in your life? What would change in your life? Would you make the decisions that you are making right now? Would you be living the life that you're living right now? What motivates you when you have your goals? Is it faith? Is it fear? How are you going about what you're going? Is it through love and forgiveness, or is it fear and self-centeredness? How, what are your guidelines as you're actually accomplishing your goals? Are they moral? Uh, are they virtuous? Are they in line with God's word? Or are they outside of God's word, outside of God's will? How are you doing what you're doing? So as you're thinking through those things, uh, yeah, I just want to invite you to uh, spend a thoughtful moment uh, with God. As the, as the music is playing, yeah, just kind of go through your life goals. And um, as you're listening to the music, it's my prayer that uh, God would speak to your heart in terms of your goals, your desires, your decisions. May God bless you. When I was growing up, uh, uh, between the ages of around 19 to 24, there was really this big question of, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Like, what is your will? Uh, how should I, uh, what can I do? How do I know that um, this is what you want me to do? And uh, while I asked that question, I really, uh, there was a period of my life where I really delayed making life decisions. And in the U.S., uh, the education system is a bit more, um, 
forgiving for people who haven't made up their minds yet. And uh, basically, I had finished high school. Uh, I was about to enter into university. Uh, and in the U.S., there's kind of this intermediary uh, education. It's called community college. And basically, uh, it's two years where you um, just take general classes. And if you do well, um, you can apply to state universities, and they'll accept those first two years as university credit, and you basically start your third year. So it's kind of like redemption time, right? And the education is very cheap. You don't have to apply to get in. You basically fill in paperwork, and then you're in, and you sign up for classes, and it ends up being about $800 a semester. And uh, so I did two years of that, and at the end of it, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, it was at that time where I had a youth pastor who said, hey, Roy, um, why don't you why don't you check out this Bible school? And basically, you'll be grounded in the Bible, and um, I just think it'll be a good opportunity for you. And uh, I, I was like, yeah, no, that sounds really good. And I talked to my dad, and my dad was like, wait, so when are you gonna when are you gonna finish your education? You're like right in the middle of it. I was like, I know, but I'm not sure what I want to do. I, I'm not sure what God wants me to do. And my dad was like, all right, how long is this? How long is this course? I was like, it's three and a half months. And after three and a half months, I'll go to school. And um, that three and a half month journey uh, really didn't help me figure out what I wanted to do. It just reinforced, I don't know what I want to do. <laughs> and um, in America, you know, they, they have loans uh, to help people get through education. Uh, not so much hex or anything like that, which I think is just an incredible system. Um, and so, you know, my friends were going through education, and each year that they were in uni, it was costing them around twenty-four, dollars $25,000 a year. And uh, after two or three years, they're like, oh, man, I still don't know what I want to do. And I was like, all right, hold up. I don't have any money as it is, and that's just like a very, very expensive way to figure out what you want to do. And so I called my dad after two, three and a half months, and I was like, all right, I want to try this missionary thing. I want to try this Bible working thing. And I asked my dad, um, look, just give me three and a half more months, and um, I'm just going to do Bible work, and let me just figure out uh, what God wants me to do. And he's like, when are you going to finish schooling, right? He's like an Asian parent, and it's like, if you don't finish your schooling, it's like the world is coming to an end, right? And uh, so three and a half months finished, and I called my dad up, and I was like, just give me six more months. Just give six six more months. Anyway, that turned into like four and a half years. And so <laughs> my poor dad was going through this, like, oh, no, what's going to happen to my son? And each time I would come home, my dad is kind of like, I noticed his approach changed. At first, he was like very aggressive, like, go to school. And I was pretty stubborn, so I was like, no. <laughs> like, I, you know, like, I, I'm just not ready yet. And then later on, it was like, are you going to go to school? And then it was like, please go to school. And uh, that that time was so incredibly valuable for me because, um, yeah, there was this incredible fear of debt. There was this uncertainty of what I actually was willing to commit my life to. And, uh, yeah, I was just kind of afraid. And uh, it's really during that time where God um, really started giving me security in in his care for me and there were different things that were happening in my life where uh, God would just bring uh, something or someone into my life that was just incredibly encouraging and I realized you know what life is going to be okay like life is going to be okay and uh, I remember I was finishing up my Bible work and I decided all right I'm going to go to school like I'm going to go into ministry I think this is something God wants me to do and um, 
at that time, there are a few things that were going against me. One, I was pretty broke. Uh, number two, um, I wasn't sure if, like, there was a sense of, man, I don't know if I can handle school for, you know, another however many years I need to do. And um, so I, I went back to that missionary school, and they do pastoral training. It's just like seven-month pastoral training course, and they give you university credit for it. So I thought, okay, this is something I'm familiar with. I'll do it, and then I'll go to uni after that. And so um, a big question on my mind was finances. And so I went to the school, uh, the school principal, and I asked him, look, um, I've got about $2,000 on me. Uh, the course, I think, was around $7,000. And um, I went to him and I was like, can you let me work for you, work at your school? Um, your school trains missionaries. I've been a missionary for, for a while now. And um, I'll work for your school. And uh, will you just um, cut that down in half? I'll, I'll give you 50% of tuition. And he goes, talks to his wife, uh, who is also helping him run the school. And they're like, okay, yeah, like, your tuition will be 50%. Um, you pay us what you have, and then you, you can go through the course. And I was like, sweet. So I had about a couple grand. I gave him 1500 off the bat. Or excuse me, I owed him 1500 And I couldn't figure it out. And so I kind of went to the school accountant, and I was like, hey, half of 7000 isn't 1500 How come I owe you 1500 And the guy said, oh, look, um, employees don't have to pay for room and board, so we'll feed you and we'll house you. And I was like, oh, man, I can't believe this. And so $1,500, and um, that portion of education was taken care of, and I was really excited about that. And, uh, yeah, I was just kind of praying, and I was like, God, if you want me to go into ministry, you open a door, and I'll know that this is, this is your will. I'm trying to do things your way, and I'm limiting what I can do, and I need you to do what, what you can do. And it was in the middle of that program um, that there were some people in Australia, and they basically contacted me, and they said, Hey, Roy, um, how do you feel about coming back to Australia? We'll pay for your education, and then you come back to Australia, and you pastor. And uh, at that moment, I kind of I was like, man, this is such a huge answer to prayer. Like, God is opening a door. And so in that conversation, I was like, yep. I'll take the offer. And they're like, oh, do you want to, do you want to pray about it first? And I was like, nope, don't need to pray about it. I've, I've prayed already. And they're like, oh. And it, it's kind of awkward to be like, I prayed that God would take care of my education and you're doing it now. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, uh, they're like, okay, good. And what ended up happening is the school that I went to, uh, ended up costing just a little over $25,000 a year. And I had to do it, uh, I had to be enrolled for around three years, which is $75,000. Um, I had friends who had to do all four years, which is $100,000. And basically, these guys that want, these guys and these ladies that want to be pastors, um, go to school for four years. It costs them $100,000. And at the end of it, they're not guaranteed a job. So it's like, you're in debt this much. And I remember thinking, man, I, I can't believe that, uh, like, I have sponsorship. And so, uh, word came and they're like, we will sponsor half of the $25,000. And I was like, awesome. At the same time, rats. <laughs> like, that's still a lot of money. And in the U.S., uh, my tax status was um, basically I was independent. I was 24 years old, going back to uni, and I was kind of thinking, man, this is a this is a older age to go go back to uni. And I remember my first class. Uh, you know, there's like 17 and 18 year olds, and I was like, I look like them but they're younger than I am. And I just remember thinking, feeling very out of place. But um, yeah, so I went back to school when I was 24, and because I was an independent with tax status, or uh, under that tax status, uh, basically the government in the U.S. offers something called grants 
Now, they don't have HEX, but they have grants. And it's not a scholarship. Basically, what it means is if you don't have money, uh, the government wants to encourage their, uh, their citizens to go get schooling. And so it's need-based funding. And basically, my, my tax status, I was like, I was like below poverty level. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the government basically said, yep, we'll give you around $11,000 a year. And so I, I'm kind of thinking, like, after I went through registration, after I worked out uh, accounting and finances, I realized, you know what? I can survive uni and come out of this with, like, minimal to zero debt. And I remember finishing three years of university, having employment at the end of it, and um, being debt-free, like, just after uni. And I just thought, man, it's like the great financial crisis is here. Like, so many people had to drop out of school because they didn't have enough, have enough money to finish. And I just remember thinking... Like, so this is what it means when, when God provides. And um, this is what it means when God says, you seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things I will add to you. And, um, yeah, I just, I kind of, it, it made me realize uh, when you do submit things to God and when he takes control, it's beyond what you could possibly imagine. And, um, yeah, it was just an incredible faith-building journey where, um yeah, I just feel like I had a small picture of God's goodness. And I believe that God wants to give that same experience to each and every person. Um, and, and the guideline is given in the Lord's Prayer. And so um, I just want to encourage you that as you bring your uh, plans and, and your desires to God, allow Him to have control over your life. Uh, restrict yourself in those three areas, and it will unrestrict God in your life. And so, uh, yeah, it's my prayer that um, you'd really be able to experience in that way. Um, I found that I don't always get what I want when I want, but at the end of each journey in my life, I realize this is what God is like, and it's so much better than what I've expected. And so may God bless you as you consider these things. Let's pray together. Father God, as we consider uh, your greatness, your power, your will, and your desire in our lives, I just want to pray that you would teach us to submit our lives to you, and may we see you do great things. Um, Father, uh, it's interesting to reflect upon church history. Uh, the church accomplished a lot of great things, uh, did a lot of bad things, but I just want to pray that in our lives, as we submit them to you, uh, that you would teach us to be able to do great things for you, to see you do great things in our lives, and may we do it in your way so that your name is glorified and that your kingdom um, is is built as a result. We pray this in your name. Amen.